In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus uttered one of the most profound statements he made in his entire life and ministry. He said this, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what good would it be to become the wealthiest person on planet earth if you are not ready for eternity when you die? It would all be meaningless. It would be worse than meaningless. You've probably heard the story about the wealthy man who liquidated all of his assets and had his fortune turned into gold blocks or bricks that could be placed in a suitcase and buried with him in his casket. His plan was to take the suitcase of gold bricks with him to heaven when he died. When he arrived, an angel asked him what was in his suitcase. He opened it for the angel to see, and when he did, the angel said, Pavement? Why did you bring pavement? What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? There is no profit in that whatsoever because nothing is more important than being ready for eternity. When you, when you die and stand before Jesus Christ, you better be ready because nothing can compare with the horror of hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you. Nothing is more important or more valuable than being ready to enter eternity. That is more valuable than anything in this universe. A close second, however, is having the assurance that you are ready for eternity. You see, having salvation is one thing, and having assurance of salvation is another thing. It is possible for someone to possess salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but have doubts and insecurities, and a lack of assurance. The Lord wants us to have both. He wants us to have eternal life, and He wants us to have the assurance in our minds, in our hearts, that we do have eternal life. That was one of the main reasons why the Apostle John wrote his little letter titled 1 John. Let's turn there together, if you're not already there, over near the end of the New Testament to the little epistle titled 1 John. Please follow along as I read verses 10 through 15 of chapter 3. That will form our text of meditation this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
As you can see from reading through these verses, one of the issues that John addresses is the issue of assurance. In verse 10, he says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. That is a statement of assurance for those who are children of God. Then in verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. John wants us to know with certainty that we possess eternal life. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things, referring to his letter, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. That is one of John's stated purposes for writing this letter. He wrote this letter to help us understand how to have, not only how to have salvation, but how to have assurance of salvation. Therefore, he gives a number of objective tests to help us evaluate our lives. I mentioned this earlier in the series, but let me mention it again because it is such an integral part of this letter. <clears throat> there are three tests or three indicators of genuine salvation mentioned in this letter. The three tests of, of genuine salvation that John sets forth in this letter are the moral test, the social test, and the doctrinal test. The moral test of salvation is the test of obedience or righteousness, whichever term you prefer. The social test of salvation is the test of love. And the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth. Let me say that again. The moral test of salvation is the test of obedience or righteousness. The social test of salvation is the test of love. And the doctrinal test of salvation is the test of truth or proper belief in Jesus Christ. Those are the three tests the Holy Spirit gives here in 1 John. The moral test of righteousness or obedience was the first one that John addressed, as we saw in the early verses of chapter 2. And he addressed it again here in chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. We saw back in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, that John explained the doctrinal test of truth or belief in Jesus Christ. He will come back to that again in chapter 4, as we will see, Lord willing, in the near future. So John repeats these tests or these themes several times in his letter. He delineates two of them right here in this third chapter. As we saw in the last message of this series, verses 4 through 10 of this chapter deal with the moral test of obedience or righteousness. In that passage, the Holy Spirit tells us that the person who truly knows God or truly knows Jesus Christ will grow in righteousness, will grow in obedience. It does not mean that we will be sinless because chapter 1 clearly tells us that the person who claims to be sinless is lying. So the issue isn't perfection, it's direction. The direction of a person's life who truly knows God, who truly knows Jesus Christ, will be a direction toward righteousness or toward obedience. This does not mean that a true Christian can't sin. This does not mean that a true Christian can't fall, can't fail, or can't get sidetracked for a period of time in life. A true child of God can do any of those things. But if you look at the big picture or the complete picture of a person's life as a whole, 
It will be characterized by obedience and will be moving toward righteousness. As I've said in the past, it's sort of like a graph that steadily moves upward, though there are drops and dips and even flat lines along the way. So that's the moral test of obedience or righteousness. John addressed that issue in the early verses of chapter 2 and then again here in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3. Now, in verses 11 through 15, John will deal with the social test of love. He introduces it in verse 10 as he summarizes what he had just been saying about the moral test and then he transitions toward the social test of love. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now that's what he's been discussing since verse 4. Here's his transition statement. The end of verse 10. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Except for that last phrase in this verse. This verse summarizes what John has been saying since verse 4. He adds the statement about loving other believers because that is his transition into what he will teach in verses 11 through 15. But prior to that, he basically summarizes all that he has been saying. The children of God and the children of the devil are differentiated by the ongoing pattern and characterization of their lives. So you could say it this way. The person who shows a conviction of sin in his life, a commitment to deal with sin, a determination to overcome sin, is a person who shows the signs of one who has been born of God. The person, on the other hand, who shows no conviction of sin, no sensitivities to sin, still loves sin, and is comfortable with sin, is not bothered by sin, is a person who shows no signs of being born of God. Or you could turn it around and say it another way. The person who loves righteousness and longs for righteousness and pursues righteousness is the person who shows signs of one who has been born of God. On the other hand, the person who spurns righteousness and is not interested in righteousness and doesn't pursue righteousness and doesn't love righteousness is the person who shows no signs of being born of God. That's what the Holy Spirit says in verses 4 through 10. And John uses the last phrase in verse 10 to transition into this second test of genuine salvation, the social test of love. And what does he say? He says this. He says that the person who does not love other Christians, the person who does not love the family of God, is himself not a Christian. Or to state this in the positive, the person who loves other Christians, the person who has a unique love for the people of God, is someone who has evidence in his life that he is also a Christian. Now how can John say this? Because it is a fact that non-Christians don't naturally love Christians. Frankly, non-Christians think we're weird. And a lot of us are. We are strange. We are different. We are peculiar. I know you may not want to hear that about yourself, but you are. And so am I. As a result, 
Non-Christians don't naturally love Christians. Oh, there may be a, a nice Christian in their lives that they love, and maybe even one that they respect, but they don't love the family of God as a whole. They don't love Christians as a, as a whole. That's not who they love to be around and spend time with. In fact, I think it would be safe to say that most non-Christians don't even like Christians as a whole. Too many of us are weird. Too many of us are strange. Even if we are somewhat normal, we're different because of our beliefs. We are different because of our priorities. We are different because of our standards, because of our practices, because of our value system, because of our perspective on what is really important in life. We don't fit. Therefore, it is not natural for non-Christians to really love the people of God. That is why John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can use this as a test or a marker. That's why he can say that the person who loves the brethren, the person who loves the people of God, the person who loves the family of God is someone who shows the work of God in his heart. That love for the brethren is something, that unique love is something that God has accomplished in the person's life. It's not merely natural. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying in this text before. So with that as background, let's look at it together. Notice how John develops his argumentation here in verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. When John uses the phrase, from the beginning, he could be referring to the beginning of their Christian lives, or he could be referring to the beginning of the gospel age initiated by Jesus, or even the beginning of the record of Scripture. The command to love goes back to the ministry of Jesus and goes back even further to the days of of Moses. All the way back in Leviticus 19.18, God had told His people Israel, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus reiterated that command when He gave a two-part answer to the question, What is the greatest commandment in the law? In the second half of His answer, Jesus quoted the words of Leviticus 19.18 by saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not only that, but Jesus gave that command a new emphasis and a new motivation in John 13, 34, and 35. He said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So John reiterates this commandment here in verse 7, and he, or in verse 11, and he reminds his readers that this is what they had heard from the beginning. But not only is this a commandment, watch this, it is also a marker or an indicator of genuine salvation. What I mean is, John first states love as a commandment, here in verse 11, but then later in this text, he will present it as a mark or an indicator of someone who has eternal life. So he says in verse 12, Not as Cain, he's just said that we should love one another. That's the command or the exhortation. Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Beloved, this is another reason why many non-Christians don't like us. Not only are we different, not only are we peculiar, sometimes the difference is in our character. If our character is righteous as it ought to be, that can make a lot of non-Christians feel very uncomfortable and even angry. That's what happened in the Cain and Abel story. Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices. Both. But for reasons not specified in the text, Cain's offering was not acceptable and Abel's was acceptable. Maybe it was because Cain's offering wasn't an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. That's a possibility. Maybe it was because Cain's offering wasn't the best he could have given. He gave an inferior offering of some kind. Maybe it was because Cain's sacrifice wasn't offered in faith, as the writer of Hebrews indicates. Whatever it was, and it could have been several things, Cain's offering was not acceptable, and Abel's offering was. As a result, Cain disdained his brother and murdered him. Now think about this. Amazingly, it wasn't because of anything Abel did against Cain himself. At least nothing like that is stated in the passage. What I mean is, Abel did not hurt Cain. He did not injure Cain. He did not accuse him. He did not make fun of him or anything like that. What happened? Simply this. They both offered sacrifices and Abel's was accepted, but Cain's was not. And God told Cain that if he did what was right, he would be accepted. But rather than do what was right, Cain took out his anger and his frustration on Abel, whose only wrong, and I put that word in quotes, whose only wrong was that he offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. His only wrong was he did what God wanted him to do. That kind of murderous Anger or hatred is not uncommon in believer and unbeliever relationships. Sometimes we are disliked or even hated simply because we try to do what is right in life. Surely you've seen this. Surely. People will call you names like Goody Two Shoes or Snow White Or they will say that you think you are better than others. Or that they will tell you that you are being holier than thou. You're stuck on yourself. Whatever whatever makes them feel better about themselves or more comfortable, they will use as a slam when you simply are trying to do what God wants you to do in life. They will make fun of you or ridicule you because you don't get drunk with them or you don't laugh at their filthy jokes or because you don't engage in their debauchery. It's not at all uncommon for God's people to be hated simply because we want to do what the Lord wants us to do and we don't want to do what the Lord doesn't want us to do. In fact, it's important that we make sure, please hear this, it's important that we make sure that if we are ridiculed or persecuted in some way, it's because of righteousness and not for some other reason. It is a sad fact that there are times when God's people experience hardship because of wrong things in their lives, not because of righteousness. Back up to 1 Peter 4, and I'll show you what I mean. You're in 1 John. Just prior to that is 2 Peter, and just prior to that, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. 
This is a very important reminder. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says to his audience, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. That's an important warning to us. Peter is saying here in this text, don't be surprised if you suffer persecution, if you suffer ridicule for Christ's sake. Don't let that catch you off guard. Don't don't be uh, taken by surprise. But make sure that if you're ridiculed, persecuted, or made fun of, or whatever, that it's not because of something wrong in your life. He is saying if we are disliked or if we suffer in some way, we, may, we need to make sure it's because of our devotion to Christ and not because of something wrong in our lives. Then Peter lists a few examples. He says, make sure it's not because you are a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Does that last one surprise you? You see, it's not merely unlawful things. It's not merely wicked things that can cause us to be disliked. It's not only sinful things that can cause us to be ridiculed. It could be things like being a busybody, sticking your nose in other people's business, or a meddler, or even things like being overly opinionated about everything in life, or not being responsible or going around with body odor, or some other of the other unacceptable things God's people sometimes do. Peter is saying this, listen, if you experience mistreatment in life, if you experience uh, ridicule in life, make sure that it's not because of something in your life that shouldn't be there. Make sure that it really is because of your righteous walk with Christ. Beloved, we need to hear that message. There are far too many Christians who assume they are shunned or ridiculed or disliked by people in society because they are Christians, but the fact of the matter is the real reason is because of something in their lives that should not be there. And it's really unfortunate that they don't see that. So Peter's warning should cause all of us to sit up, take notice, and think. And then he closes his paragraph with verse 16. He says, Yet, yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, in other words, if you're ridiculed because you're a Christian, if you're made fun of, if you're persecuted because you're a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Now that's the kind of scenario that John is talking about in our text in 1 John 3. He's talking about Hatred from the world, not because of something in our lives that shouldn't be there, but because of the fact that we are Christians and we love Jesus Christ. 
Now back to our text in 1 John chapter 3. Because it is very common for God's people to be ridiculed or persecuted or hated simply because of their righteous walk with Christ, John adds verse 13 in 1 John chapter 3. He says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. That is not really unusual. We should not be surprised by animosity from the non-Christian world. Actually, we should probably be surprised when we don't experience hatred or animosity from the world. Now, be careful. This doesn't mean that we should try to agitate people. This This does not mean that we should purposely be irritating to people. There's no virtue in that approach to life. And some of God's people need to hear this. They feel like they are more godly if they intentionally irritate people. They feel like they are more righteous if they intentionally annoy people. Beloved, that is not commendable at all. Please hear that. That is not commendable at all. We ought to be the most gracious people on the planet. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your graciousness be known to all men. Let that be your reputation, that you are a gracious person. That's what ought to characterize our lives. But even if it does, that is no guarantee that the world won't hate us because there are many people in this world who just plain hate God's ways. They hate God's standards. Therefore, when people live according to God's standards, when people seek to live according to God's way, that brings out hatred. In John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. What did Jesus ever do to cause this world to hate him? What did he do? Nothing. The only thing he did that brought about the hatred was that he represented God perfectly. He represented God flawlessly. And that infuriated many people around him. It infuriated them because it exposed their hearts. It exposed their own unrighteousness. It exposed their own lack of love for God. In John 15, 22, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus wasn't saying that they were not sinful before he came. Scripture is clear that we're all sinners. All people are sinners. He was saying their sin wasn't known until he came. It wasn't exposed until he came. But when he came and spoke the truth of God to them, when he came and he modeled the truth of God before them, it exposed their sinfulness and that infuriated them. That's why the next two verses in John 15 say this, He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. The words and works of Jesus exposed the sin of people around him. It exposed the hearts of people around him. And the result was extreme hatred against him. I mean, look at the hatred some of the people had against Jesus. You read about it. When you read about the crucifixion, you look at it and you say, how could any 
any normal human being spew out that much hatred? Why no pity? Why no sorrow for a man who was suffering like that? Why such venom? It was extreme hatred. So it shouldn't surprise us when the same kind of thing happens to us. In John 15, 19, Jesus said, If you were of the world, then the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In that statement, Jesus was reminding us that sometimes we are hated simply because we are different than the world. We have different priorities. We have a different lifestyle. We have different habits. We have a different outlook on life. We have different character. We have a different perspective on what's really important in life in light of eternity. So here in verse 13, John basically repeats what Jesus said. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Don't let that catch you by surprise. You're at work, you're at school, you're, you're on the team, you're, what, you're whatever your circle is, you're there and all of a sudden you get this, this uh, hatred, this venomous comment or whatever. Where did that come from? What did I do? Well, that's good to ask, what did I do? But maybe you did nothing but try to live for the Lord. And that's what brings out the hatred. So John says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. And then John states his main point in this text, verse 14. He says, we know, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Earlier in verse 11, John stated love as a command, as an exhortation. We ought to love one another. Here, he takes it farther. He takes it beyond the command, and he says this is a marker. This is a test. This is an indicator of those who truly belong to God and have eternal life. Now remember, it's not the only marker, because John mentions at least two others right here in this letter. He also mentions the test of truth. That is, proper belief in Jesus Christ. He also mentions the test of righteousness or obedience. So you can't isolate this one and say something like this. Well, you know, I know this loving person who is an atheist, and according to this verse, he must have eternal life because he's very loving, so he must have eternal life. No, love is a marker. It is an indicator or test of genuine salvation, but it isn't the only one. Truth and righteousness are also delineated by the Holy Spirit in this letter, but love is also one of the tests set forth by the Holy Spirit. When we see that we love the people of God, when we see that we love the body of Christ, when we see that we love the family of God with all of its faults and flaws, that is an indication of God's saving grace in our lives because that is not natural. There's something unique about that. This love for the people of God, even for the people of God we've never met. The people of God in Africa, the people of God in Turkey, the people of God in China. We have a love for God's people. We have a love for other Christians. As I said, there are unbelievers who may love a Christian or two in their lives, or maybe they have some respect and say, well, that person... I have some respect that he, you know, he stands up for what he believes. But this verse is talking about loving all the family of God, having a love, a unique love for the people of God. That's not natural. 
That is something accomplished in our lives at salvation, which is why John can make this statement here in this verse. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Romans 5, 5 says, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The resident Holy Spirit gives us a love for God and a love for the people of God that is not natural, that is not from ourselves. That's what gives us confidence that we have been born of God and have passed from death to life. This non-natural love for the people of God, this unique kind of love for the people of God is a sign of the saving grace of God in our life. And then John closes by saying the same thing in a different way, which is a pattern of his writing. Verse 15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Like other verses of Scripture, it is important that we take this verse in its context, or we could end up teaching something that is in error. For example, is this verse saying is this verse saying that anyone who has ever murdered someone is automatically consigned to hell without any chance of salvation? Uh, obviously not. Are there people who have murdered someone or who or who are responsible for the murder of someone but they are headed to heaven? Surely you know that the answer to that question is yes. King David was a murderer. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. Both were murderers. Both are in heaven with the Lord. So what does John mean by this statement? He is obviously talking about someone whose life is characterized by murder, not, by, not anyone who has ever committed this horrible act. He is not merely talking about someone who has murdered He is talking about someone who is a murderer because his heart is filled with anger and hate. Remember, this text is all about love. The verse has to be taken in the context of what the paragraph is talking about. This text is all about love. So John brings up this topic to illustrate the opposite of love, which is hate. And he wants us to understand how serious hate is. So he equates it with murder. This shouldn't surprise us, by the way. We know how much John was influenced by the teaching of our Lord. And this is, this is the same thing Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those in ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. In that text, Jesus is not only telling us that anger and hatred lead to murder, He is telling us that hatred is murder. You know, we tend to think that murder is really bad, and it is. It's horrific to take someone else's life, to rob people of their dad, their mom, grandparents, children, whatever it happens to be. That is horrific. But here's how we often think. We tend to think that murder is really bad, but anger and hatred are no big deal. We sort of have an attitude that it's okay to hold grudges. It's okay to have deep resentments. 
It's okay to harbor bitterness. It's okay to hate. But Jesus tells us it's not okay. John, basically reiterating what Jesus said, tells us it's not okay. Hatred is murder. However, we should not take that to mean that there is no difference between the attitude and the act. It goes without saying that a person's family would rather that you hate the person than murder him. So we should not take Jesus' teaching and John's teaching to mean that there is no difference between the attitude and the act when it comes to the consequences or when it comes to the ramifications in life. But what Jesus is saying and what John is saying here is that hating a person without murdering him is still an extremely grievous offense because sometimes the only reason why a person doesn't murder the individual whom he hates is simply to avoid the consequences. That's why John can make the statement here in verse 15 that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. If you have a murderous hatred in your heart, but you don't carry it out because you don't want to suffer the consequences, then guess what? You're still a murderer in your heart. Who you are as a person is still the same because the only difference is that you haven't been willing to carry out what you want to do. And you haven't been willing to because you don't want to face the consequences. You are still a murderer in your heart. You are still a murderer in your character. Thus, John's closing statement here at the end of verse 15 is this, And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So what is John's point in all of this? What what is the Holy Spirit saying to us here in this text? In one sense, it's very simple. It is this. When we see that we have this unusual, unique, non-natural love for the people of God, when we see that we love the body of Christ, when we see that we love the family of God with all of its faults and flaws, that is an indication of God's saving grace in our lives. Love for the people of God in our lives is a sign of eternal life in our hearts. That is the assurance that comes from love. It's one of the markers or indicators the Holy Spirit gives us as an assurance to us that we have eternal life. So what should you do? Simply this. Look at your heart and say, do I really love the people of God with all their faults and flaws? Do I love God's people? Not just the ones around me here. Do I love the people? Do I love the family of God? Whether that's in Africa or in Turkey or in China. Do I love God's people? Do I love the body of Christ? Is that something God has produced in my heart? If it's there, it's not something that's natural. It's something produced by the Spirit of God which should give you great joy as an indicator that you have eternal life. But if you look at your life and you say, you know what, I really don't like Christians. They're weird. They're, I don't like spending time around Christians. They're strange. That's not, that's not my group. That ought to raise questions in your mind. Are you really a child of God? Have you really experienced the saving grace of God in your life. This is a practical test the Holy Spirit gives us to examine our hearts. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head and close your eyes, think about what the Holy Spirit has said 
here in this text, he's given us a very practical, very practical test to use in examination of our hearts. One of the signs, not the only one, there are two others, remember, in this letter, but one of the signs the Holy Spirit mentions in this letter, one of the signs of someone who has experienced genuine salvation is this unique, non-natural love for God's people. Is that in your life? If it's not in your life, you should be concerned. If it is in your life, understand it's not something that you produced, something you prompted. It's something the Holy Spirit of God produced in regeneration, in saving you, in making you a new creation in Christ. So thank God for it. Thank God if you love His people with all of their faults and flaws. Thank God if you have that love for His people because that is placed in your heart by the Holy Spirit and is an indicator that you belong to God and have eternal life. Now, if you're here today without Jesus Christ, you don't earn eternal life by trying to love other Christians. That's a byproduct. Please understand that. If you're here today without Jesus Christ, then the way to have eternal life is to receive Jesus Christ by faith. Right where you are seated, right there in the quietness of your heart, you can ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to come into your life to take you, to begin making you to be the man or woman He wants you to be. I urge you to surrender to Christ in that way if you have never done so. Father, thank you for how practical your word is as we have seen once again this morning. Thank you for the directness of this passage we have considered. And as we hear its teaching, we want to thank you, those of us who are your children. We want to thank you that you have prompted and produced within us a love for your people. We have come to see that's not natural. That's something your spirit has produced in us, especially when we think that we love people we've never even met around the world others who belong to Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit producing that in our hearts and lives. And in closing, we want to pray for anyone who is hearing these words this very moment, who does not belong to you, who is not a child of yours, who needs to surrender to Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit prompt that work. May your Holy Spirit bring conviction so that he or she would understand that eternal life doesn't come by trying to love other Christians, but rather that that is a byproduct, uh, an outcome of eternal life in the heart. So give clear understanding so that this would be the day he or she would surrender to Jesus Christ, this very moment, would surrender to him by faith, would let go of whatever is holding him or her back to say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.